Welcome to The Rock's Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew are headed to a brand new book for study. I did not announce it to you guys. I think only the second service really got the official uh, announcement of where we're headed. Now that we're finished with our verse-by-verse study through the awesome epistle to the Romans, it's time to pick up another verse-by-verse study here in the New Testament. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we look to the first gospel, Matthew's gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ's life, everything he said and did that pertains to us and our salvation, the good news that we can have our sins forgiven and be in right relationship with God and enjoy God's blessing instead of his wrath. And so we're so grateful for that. God, we look to you now and dedicate this study to you and for the purpose, Lord, that we might be changed and become more like your son and more productive and effective for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So his name means gift of God. Uh, His parents named him that, no doubt, like most parents have high hopes for their children. Matthew in the Hebrew, Matthias in the Greek, and Matthew in the English. But it was probably somewhere in his late teens that his mom and dad discovered that things weren't going in the direction they had imagined. And so instead of bringing joy and being a gift, he brought a lot of grief, as foolish children will do to their parents' hearts as the Proverbs reminds us. And so any Jewish man who would end up being a tax collector employed by Rome, as Matthew was, really had to have some pretty cool qualifications. Number one, he needed to be uh, traitorous. You know, he needed to be morally bankrupt. He needed to be greedy and dishonest and As such, those kinds of people were really delegated to the the lower echelons of society, to the bottom of the barrel, as we say, maybe a social outcast for sure. Tax collectors were barred from the synagogues. They were barred from the temple. They were excluded from being able to testify in the courts. They were the object of public disdain. On top of all of this, just plain unpopular to be a tax collector. Nobody especially likes paying money to the government, especially, yeah, hello, I pause there. (laughs) Especially oppressive regimes. 
tax collecting. Well, you know, um, a few years ago, several years by now, I baptized a young man, and uh, it was in this church. And uh, he was giving his testimony. And he said, well, you know, most of you know, I'm a tax collector for the IRS. And, and he paused, and I said, bro, I'm going to have to hold you down a few extra seconds now <laughs> with this new information. <laughs> so there sat a despised Matthew at the Capernaum toll, becoming rich by uh, extorting his fellow Jews and the merchants and the travelers who passed from the Sea of Galilee into Capernaum, uh, collecting his greedy little exorbitant um, fees and all of this. It was an ideal location, though, because uh, where was Jesus? 80% of his ministry, Capernaum, in that whole area. So he's hearing about the Son of God. The Son of God has been through on several occasions. And he's got a disciple now for a brother. His brother, the other son of Alphaeus, James, not Zebedee, but he's his brother, James, who's been sharing the gospel, no doubt, with Matthew. And then on that fateful day, the Son of God passes through the toll booth on purpose, <laughs> seeking more than just to toss some shekels into Matthew's tray. Jesus looks at him and pauses and stares into his eyes, right into his soul, the way only God can do. Jesus is God in every way, and he said those words. God looks at Matthew's despised soul and person and being and said, you follow me. And as any believer will tell you, when your soul hears the voice of the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, if you're honest, you do what Matthew did. You arise, you leave what you were doing, and you follow. And that's exactly what Matthew did. And he began a new life right then and there. And for Matthew, that meant instead of keeping meticulous records for Rome, he would keep even better records for God and start writing down the things that Jesus was saying and doing. And so now, instead of being a, a, a greedy servant of Rome, he was restored to be that gift of God. That's called redemption. He buys us back. From the life that we tried to ruin, he makes something beautiful out of it. And so with the help of the Holy Spirit, Matthew starts chronicling down everything that's going on. And um, from the early days to the birth, to the resurrection, to the ascension, uh, we get it all in 28 chapters. He even sneak in an entire chapter there, uh, chapter 9, and tell his testimony of that fateful day when he repented and gave his life to the Lord. And so as we get underway here with a new book, verse by verse through Matthew, keep this in mind. Matthew has a task, as all four gospel writers do. They're each given a, ta a task by the Holy Spirit to give a different slant, four different slants. Uh, you hold up a four-sided gem, maybe, and you hold it to the light, and you're going to get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You're going to get four different um, 
facets of Jesus' life. And Matthew's job is to convince the Jews, the Jewish people, that their Messiah had come in fulfillment of Jewish prophecies. And that is why he refers to the Old Testament 62 hard times, direct. This happened because it is written 62 times in 28 chapters. He says this was all known before. So Jewish people and Gentiles as well can lay aside the silly notion that this is just Jesus, some random guy, a nice holy man who happened to you know, be at the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time and ended up, whoops, he got killed. No, no. This was all the plan. It's all the plan. As it is written three times a chapter, and then 30 times indirectly. And so, yeah, there's no escaping it. God had a plan. It was born out of love. And so chapter 1 and 2, which we'll come back to at Christmas time, because it's the Christmas narrative, and it's almost summer time. And uh, those are also available. I on, we only have Matthew 1 and 2 online. And so the rest of it is going to be online at the end of this study. And so we'll pick up at chapter 3 with Jesus' adult ministry. And you haven't missed anything the grown-up Jesus has done. Matthews 1 and 2, of course, the birth narrative with all of the details, the Magi, the escape to Egypt, uh, Herod's murderous rage, and all of this will make a perfect study for Advent Sunday in December. We'll go back to Matthew 1 and 2, Lord willing. So here it is, how it all got started. We begin here in the desert with John the Baptist, who God sent in to prepare the way. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days when Jesus the Messiah was alive and well, and in Nazareth, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the one, Matthew's telling you right here, hey, by the way, this is the man who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, Matthew's telling you this is the voice, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he uh, had a leather belt around his waist. His food was very vegan. Uh, he, he, he ate locusts and wild honey, a natural sweetener indeed. Very necessary if one is eating locusts. <laughs> Verse 5 People went out to him from Jerusalem, all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan. This is a big deal. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious uh, establishment, the bad guys in the story, coming to where he was baptizing, he says to them, you brood of vipers, 
Not very seeker sensitive there. I don't think. You brood of little snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He continues. Produce fruit behavior in keeping with repentance and inner change. Don't, don't think you can say to yourselves, we're Jews. We've got Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. And the axe is already at the root of the trees, you bad boys. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come someone way more powerful and way more noble, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork, threshing, dividing the good from the bad, is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, one pile on one side, one pile on the other, gathering his wheat in the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Thank you, Spencer. We will soon begin our trek through these three paragraphs, but for now, we'll wait until we begin with uh, verses one through six. You can leave them up there as we get settled. That's good. So it had been prophetically some 400 years of silence. God was waiting for what the Bible calls the fullness of time. He was preparing the roads and the uh, Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. Everything had to be just right for the appearance of God's son. And Malachi would give the Jewish people a heads up. The prophet there closes out the last word of the Old Testament to say, just so you know, when it's time for the Lord to come into his temple to appear, Elijah will come first. And so they had known through the heads up, through the prophet Malachi and Isaiah, who said, hey, when the Lord is going to restore things and appear, there'll be a voice in the wilderness calling you will hear God's voice in the desert places. So between Malachi and Isaiah and other prophets, Israel knew exactly what to look for. Because that's born out of God's heart. He doesn't want anybody to miss it, right? That's why he sends a star over the place of the Messiah's birth. You know, he doesn't want one person to perish, but to er for everyone to come uh, to eternal life. And so in those days, that's what it says there. In those days, you're looking at it. Verse one, John the Baptist came into the middle of nowhere and boom, crowds came out with excitement because they recognized it. They knew what a, he's kind of like Elijah. He looks like Elijah. He's got the Elijah style to him. He's dressed like Elijah, you know, and there's a voice. Isaiah said, there'll be a voice. Where? In the wilderness. So they knew. That's why people came from all those places there. And so verses 1 through 12 introduces us to this uh, fascinating character. And it's so crucial, the, 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 the word repentance, man. If you miss the message and meaning of John the Baptist, at worst, you will not be in the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom of heaven is associated with the word, always repentance. It's Jesus' first words, the same words as John. If 
you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, there'll have to be a change. That's what the word means. And the other way it's such a beautiful thing uh, for believers is because our sinful nature survives conversion. And so our default mechanism when we're not steering the wheel and filled with the Holy Spirit, the second you pause with that effort, the heart goes back to default, rebel, me, myself, and I, sinful uh, gratification of our own desires. And so repentance that gets us into the kingdom keeps us daily on the straight and narrow path that leads to life and blessing. Repentance is a treasure. Repentance, we turn away from disaster, turn toward God and blessing. Oh, so thankful for this gift that his kindness leads us, not just the first time, but every day after course corrections here and there. Every single one of us has something to repent for this morning. Amen? Three points here. What you're looking at, verses one through six, God's message, what's coming up is God's warning, and then thirdly, God's remedy. So let's follow the crowd here. We've already kind of gotten started with this repent stuff. So what does he say? The Baptist is saying what God has promised to do is about to happen. And this is astounding. Therefore, you must make some changes, right? Changes in order because the kingdom of heaven is near, close at hand, or you can have it as open for business. And now what was astounding to the Jewish understanding and why they would trek out into the middle of nowhere is because those Jews knew that the kingdom of heaven had been closed. Of course it's been closed, Adam, and Eve got kicked out because of their sin. They were kicked out and removed and barred from entering the kingdom of heaven, the paradise of God. They were excluded. They were on the outside, and everyone born of them was born on the outside. Heaven's gates were closed. And John is saying, oh, by the way, heaven's gates are here, and they're ready to open. After all of these years from the dawn of creation, the king and his kingdom once closed to the entire Old Testament people. Yes, they were blessed, but they were close to heaven. They did not go to the Christian New Testament heaven because it was closed. When they died, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when the prophets died, when Noah died, blessed as they were in this life with their future promises, they didn't enter the presence of the Lord. They descended, Luke chapter 16, into a place called Sheol. Yes, described by Christ on the day he died and was dying. In his dying breaths, he called it paradise, a very nice place indeed, but not the presence of heaven surrounded by God because sins had not been paid for. So John's saying, hey, listen, the gates that were locked shut because of the sin of our parents and death came to men and spread to everyone because all had sinned and shut themselves out of the kingdom of heaven. The king and his plan 
to restore us to paradise lost is near. Therefore, they're going to need to be some changes because if you're entering a kingdom, you're implying there's a king and you're going to have to submit to this king. You'll have to repent. Better sense of this is you will have to be changed. So you come to understand that changes will have to happen. You cannot uh, just go on with your life that, uh, as it is. So uh, the message of, he says, so therefore repent. Now, the word repent in this message isn't just John's message. It's Matthew 4.1. Jesus Christ will have the exact same message. Repent for the kingdom of God is getting close to you. It is the first uh, message that the disciples go out preaching. If you can check that out in Mark chapter 6, if you're taking notes. Uh, Repent and believe uh, the first words of the first Christian sermon. Born, the church born on the day of Pentecost. What's the sermon that brings the church in? Repent and believe. Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away. But the first word to the church, the first word from John the Baptist, the first word from Jesus, the first word from the disciples, the first word that Paul describes his ministry as in Acts chapter 20 is repent. So today, the devil has come up with the, his boldest move yet is to create a gospel with no gate to heaven because, oh, you're going to get all the good news except the way to get in. And so we removed the, the part that, oh, do you still say repent? Oh, what an ingenious, diabolical, wicked thing to do is to get Christians to take the escape route out of the plan. Oh, pull the escape, the fire, take away the fire escape and let the building catch on fire with all the good news that you want to give except the way to safety. And so a lot of Christians have bought into it. You just come in. There's no need for change. Oh, God loves you this way. Love, love, love. You're good, good, good. Grace, grace, grace. Live any way you want. He's cool with it. Jesus thinks we need to change in order to get in the kingdom or be changed, as I've been saying. The word metanaeo means to change your mind, and uh, it really has come to mean a change of mind that produces a change of behavior. A change of mind that doesn't produce a change of behavior is not biblical repentance. And so uh, James underscores that when he says faith, and faith and repentance is sort of the same coin, two different faces, Right, Because you won't repent unless you believe. And if you believe, you must change. You will change. So those words kind of describe how we come to Christ. And so if you want a picture, a perfect picture of repentance, uh, Matthew will record it in chapter 21. I believe I have those verses for you. Here's what Jesus thinks repentance should look like. 
What do you think, he says, there was this man, he had two boys. He went to the first and said, son, go work for me in the vineyard today. And he says, no, I don't feel like it, dad. I'm not going to do it. But later, he, he changed his mind, the word to repent, and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, yeah, sure, no problem. I'm on it, dad. But he didn't go. So which of the two did what his father wanted? They said the first, the first one did because he changed his mind and did it, right? Jesus said to them, this reminds me of something, guys. <laughs> Truly, I tell you that the tax collectors like Matthew and the prostitutes like Mary Magdalene are entering the kingdom before you religious guys. Because for John, here it is, there's John. For John came to you to show you the way to get right with God. That's what that word means. And you did not believe him, faith in the message, faith in the gospel. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw the miraculous changes in these people's lives, you did not repent and believe him as evidenced by a changed life. And so what he's saying is, you know, the flagrant sinners who knew they were sinners with no excuses, right? Uh, they had already told the father, look, I'm not serving you. But then they heard John's message. Hey, anybody interested in going to heaven? And some good news here. You guys, amnesty, God's going to proclaim 2,000 years of amnesty. Want to get in? And the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the drug dealers and the angry, violent men said, yeah. But the religious folks said, oh, we don't need to be baptized. Thank you very much. We only baptize Gentiles. Did you know that? Baptism was only, not for Jews. No Jew got, ever got baptized. There were ceremonial cleansings. But full immersion, baptizing, you only did that to a convert who was coming in from outside. And so the Jews were like, moi? Be baptized? Oh, no, I'm a Jew. I'm related to Abraham. Thank you very much. And so uh, John said that's going to be a problem, and he's going to have to use some strong language, as you already saw that was coming. Now, repentance. Y you know, repentance is not like a good work God requires, like you've got to do something, clean up your life. Oh, that's not the message of the Bible. Repentance is more like describing what, it, what coming to God is like. So I invite my cousins from Boston to come to California. I needn't say, now you guys need to leave Boston and then come to California. I think they get the idea. So well, I just say come to California because to come to California is to leave Boston, right? Now, if they haven't left Boston, they certainly haven't come to California. Now, when we come... Amen? <laughs> How many of you know people who think they're in California, but actually they've got a Bostonian accent and, and they're in Harvard Square? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right. So, no, sorry. John, 1 John 2, 4 says, if you think you're in the kingdom of heaven and you haven't left your life of sin, John's words, you are a liar in the truth has no place 
in you. You've got to leave. You've got to leave your life of sin and unbelief and that pattern. And, and that is the repentance that happens when the heart believes. That's just it. So verse 3 is quoting there the voice. You're going to hear a voice. John's voice is the sign of God's great love. There nobody missed this. And so what does it mean to prepare your heart? Is that a good work that's going to help you get saved? Not at all. He's saying, when he says, prepare, make straight paths for the Lord, this is a good mental effort that will help you to get saved by what? Preparing your heart, make a straight path. It just means, start. Eh, folks, God is here visiting in a human body. Time to get real. Time to lay down playing games. Time to stop with the excuses and all your obstacles between you and God and God's saving word, the word that can be implanted in us and save us, New Testament. So if there's a big, fat briar bush of your personal distractions with your personal passions and your private little uh, pretty sins... How's the message, how's the arrow ever going to hit your heart and bring the life? So John's saying, the voice is saying, whatever it is, and Jesus will say, you know what, if it's your hand that's getting in the way of you getting into heaven, you might as well just chop it off. Because it's better to go to heaven with one hand than to go into hell, Jesus' words, with two good working hands. He says, what if it's your eye? It's near and dear to your eye. Oh, I could never lose that. If it's getting in the way of the gospel that will save your eternal soul, it doesn't matter if it's near or dear as an eyeball. Gouge it out, Jesus says, because it's better to go to heaven with one good eye than to be, Jesus' words, plunged into hell with two working eyes. So all, all, all Isaiah is saying of the voice of John is saying, Time for no more excuses, no more justifications, no more playing, God, you know, let's talk about evolution. Oh, it's not time for that. It's time to lay it all down so the message can hit the bullseye. It can germinate into life everlasting. And John's sign here. Don't miss this. He's going to look like Elijah. Second Kings 1.8. You can't miss that. The clothing, the camel hair. You know, it's not camel hair like you would get at uh, Nordstrom's. <laughs> this is like rustic camel hair where you look more like a camel than anything <laughs> else, right? And so uh, Malachi's last words. And, and here's what's so interesting here. Listen to this. That the disciples ask in Matthew 17, Jesus, doesn't it say somewhere that Elijah's going to come before the Lord? And Jesus says, yeah, there'll be two of those because there are two comings. So he says, if you will, John the Baptist symbolically was the first coming John the Baptist. But he does say in Matthew 17, oh yeah, and there'll be another one. Elijah will come and restore all things. What? And there are two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. The law and the prophets come back to life to the Jewish people because it's the time of Jacob's trouble. 
The great tribulation is all about Israel. So God allows the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, to do the same plagues that there are associated with the calling down of fire, the, the waters turning to blood. They're the ones, the scholars say, that get empowered to give, an, give the Antichrist a little run for his money. You know, the Bible says that the Antichrist will kill them and they will lay in the streets for three and a half days and then the breath of God comes in and raises them up and then raises them in front of all those CNN cameras (laughs) and they go up with a shout. And yet, it says men didn't change repenting. Men would not repent. And so repent not only is the first word in the Old Testament and New Testament, repenting is the last word that says, and still, God's love and heart was saying, hey, come on. And they said, no, we will not change. We will stay on track. So we need to continue on here. Uh, the, the many people came out to see him because uh, they, they, they were hungry for the voice of God. Uh, moving on, we got to go fast now. But when he was, <laughs> that's the main crux of the message is repentance, right? Explaining that, if you don't get that, you know. But when he saw many of the bad dudes coming out with the robes on and scowls on their faces, he says, oh, look who showed up, the pythons. Uh, <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Uh, John does not think that they are good candidates for baptism. He senses that this is a farce, and so he's going to let them have it. Number one, God only lets the bad guys in the story have it. He never speaks harshly to a regular, broken, everyday sinner. Never. He only calls out those who want to play games and those, oh, these Pharisees and Sadducees were the religious elite. They made up something called the, the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. There were 70 of them, but 6,000 Pharisees in the country. And the Pharisees made life miserable for any believer by <laughs> making all kinds of rules and regulations and burdening people. The Sadducees were just corrupt Uh, men from the aristocracy, uh, and uh, they were liberal and didn't know their Bible. The Pharisees at least knew their Bible, but they were very, very twisted in their thinking, and uh, they had no room in their hearts, most of them, for this message. So they show up there, and John gives them a well-deserved slap in the face because there's nothing worse than they represented God. They represented God. And and Jesus says in Matthew 23, not only are you guys not going to heaven, but you're keeping others from going to heaven as well. So, you know, I think it's loving to take out some smelling salts to a bad guy and let him have it because, I mean, nothing else has worked, right? And so uh, he says... uh, Snakes, you know, did you guys finally figure it out? I mean, who suggested to you that you might want to step out of the way of the lightning bolt headed your direction called the, God, the wrath of God? It's hanging over your sin-loving, hypocritical heart. So John has some advice in verse 8 for them. Try producing fruit 
which means the way you speak and act, like someone whose heart is right before God. Why don't you try doing that? Verse 9, and the way for you to get right with God is stop the false notion of that your Jewish DNA is enough. And in John chapter 8, the Pharisees talking to Jesus said, look, we've got Abraham as our father. We don't need anything else. That was the Jewish mindset. The Jewish mindset was, if we're related to Abraham, God made promises to Abraham's descendants. We uh, did a little DNA check with Ancestry.com. We found out that we are truly related to him. And God said, your descendants will be blessed. And Jesus said, your descendants will be blessed if they have the same kind of faith as Father Abraham, you don't get in with your DNA. He says, you look at the stones here. There's stones all over the place. He goes, God can raise up if he wanted to. Uh, Children with the right legacy, you know, right heritage from these dead rocks, which he kind of did. He he took people with no biblical understanding, no background, no closeness to Israel, nothing. Hard, dead, terrible people. And he raised them up and plugged them in. So he said, quit thinking that. I talked to a guy once, and he, I said, so you're a Christian? And he goes, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was born here. That's what he said. He said, I was born here. I have, yes, I have Christian, Judeo-Christian values. And so he considers himself a Christian, right? But that's the same idea. The same idea is, is that, well, Billy Graham's kids saying, <laughs> asking Franklin, are you a Christian? Well, come on, I'm Billy Graham's kid. Uh, yeah, well, we need some more information. <laughs> and so when did you personally repent? That's what it'll always come down to. All your personal advantages and privileges and honors, and you have them, they're worthless without personal repentance. That's what saves. That's exactly what he's saying here. And then he does say, you know, terrible thing, verse 10. He goes, look, you know, if God sent his son and took an ax to his boy and cut the perfect son of God down, in shame, and in a bloodbath. It pleased the Lord to crush him. And if you, Pharisees, knowing that, are going to snub God's gracious invitation, then the ax is wielded again because justice must be paid. It was paid in Christ, and the axe wielded his direction. And then he says, I love you. Watch out. There's an axe out there for all who are not paid. Two kinds of people in this world, paid and not paid. Nothing to do with good and bad. Though, once you're paid, you ought to see some goodness there. Yeah. Not about good and bad. Oh, let me see. No. It's about paid or not. Let's close up here really fast here. I baptize you with water for repentance, but someone else is coming and you need to go to him 
to acquire the fire, okay? So maybe people are saying, we've heard a lot about this repentance, uh, you know, we've heard the message, we've got the warning, at least the bad guys did. Um, and now, you know, what, what's the remedy? How can we do it? In fact, in Luke's version, the people are asking questions. They're saying, well, what does that look like, John? How can I uh, do these uh, deeds that are in keeping with repentance? And so John says, you got two coats. You know, someone whose heart's been touched by God will evidence that by sharing and having compassion on people, you know? And so the tax collectors say, what about us? And he says, stop overcharging people. So he says, stop, start with integrity and being honest. And then the soldiers say, well, what does that look like for us? Because repentance will always look very different in this section right here. How you all need to repent today of something, it all looks different. And so they're all asking. And John's saying, you know, whatever thing has your heart more than God. Does it influence you more than God? Do you bow the knee to something more than God? Well, perhaps there needs to be some change, repentance there. The soldiers Quit corrupting people. Uh, stop oppressing. Be content with your wages. Maybe if we asked, he would say, you know, submit to your husband. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. Spend a little time in prayer. How about reading your Bible or giving to the work of God? These are areas, if you ask, well, what about me? What does is, what is repentance look like for me? He's got an answer for that. And that's what John just says. Listen, I could help you repent. I can pastor you guys and show you in the right, point you to the right direction. I can immerse you in water and say a prayer over you, but I'm limited, man. But someone's coming after me, a real worthy man, because he's the God man. And he is the one with the power to uh, remake you. Jonathan's saying, you know, you need to do, come up with some self-reformation. He's saying you need to be transformed. And the way you get transformed into a new person is to come to Christ. And he will not just dunk you in water like me. He's saying, I can just, uh, you know. I'm like, I hope something going on in the heart because if not, you just got a bath, but it's not going to help you, right? But, but the one that I point you to, and if you go to him, you won't be asking, how is this possible? Before I was a Christian, I told a guy on the street with a track, handed me a track, a gospel track, and he's telling me about the Lord. And I said, I'm starting to believe there is a God because of what I'm seeing around me, my father, blah, 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 blah. But I will never... Never, never be a Christian. I said, I don't like anything you guys like. I, I don't think like you. I don't want to be like you. I, I don't find anything you do fun. I don't like the way you guys talk. I don't like anything about you. Why would I ever, I, even though I'm starting to think, whoa, there's probably a God, I personally, me, no way. I could never, I couldn't make it through a weekend being a Christian. I didn't understand. You go to Jesus and he immerses you in fire, the power, a presence of the Holy Spirit. I had no idea. I thought the old Ross was going to start you know, turning over a new leaf. I'm a Christian now. No. You come to Jesus and he 
immerses you, dips you, that's what the word means, fills you with new life. And he says, that's the fire, that's the energy. That's what will take to burn that crud out of your mind and change and refine you and give you the energy to be God's energy, to be the person God has designed you to be. Two options in life. Two options. There are 5,000 languages. There are 195 countries. There's, I don't know, 10,000 people groups. But God sees two kinds of people. Wheat worth saving and chaff worth discarding. Two kinds. Which one are you? And if you believe you're the wheat going for God's barn, is what's coming out of your mouth and your actions in keeping with repentance? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your love. Thank you for making it easy. God, this is, it's just serious business uh, being near the kingdom of God and God himself, the king. So help our hearts to take it for what it is. <laughs> serious business with eternal ramifications beyond our wildest dreams. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.